everyone. My name is James Murphy. I'm one of your ruling elders, and it's a blessing to see you here. And thank you to everyone who is joining us online. It's a, uh, it's a blessing to be together on the Lord's Day. And uh, I'm always conscious of the fact that there are other things that uh, may have drawn you today to do other things. You could have slept in. You could have taken care of chores. You could have done a, a myriad of different things, but you chose to be here, and that, that's important. It's, it's important for your heart. It's important for your family. It's important to be instructed and encouraged by God's Word and to hear the teaching of God's Word. So just uh, welcome and thank you uh, for, for doing that, and uh, I, I'm sure you'll be blessed for, for doing that. So welcome also to our guests. If, uh, if you've never been here before, if this is the first time in a long time, um, we'd love to hear from you, and uh, there's information on our website that uh, can uh, help you share your information with us so we can uh, to minister to you. Um, on that note, just some announcements and some uh, family business here. Um, if you haven't joined Realm, that's really kind of the best place uh, to, to hear what's going on in the church, to uh, receive announcements, to hear about the various ministries, community groups, uh, youth group, and so on. That's a great place uh, to do that. You can also um, see how... Uh, you can give to this ministry, give to the, the needs of this church and the various things that we support. Uh, Realm is a good place to do that. And on that note, um, just administratively, if, if, uh, if you feel led to, uh, to contribute, to, to tithe and provide offerings here, there are boxes at the exits that you can you'll walk past on your way out. Uh, many of you have shifted to giving online, and we're really appreciative of that. We had our business meeting just this week with the, with the session, and each, each month since this uh, COVID emergency has occurred, it's just been uh, really uh, amazing to us, and it's been a tremendous blessing to see that you continue to give. Many of you shifted your giving online, um, and you've been very faithful, and, and so that, and that way we've been uh, blessed, whereas other churches are, are really struggling. So just uh, on behalf of the session, I want to thank you for doing that. There are other ways to give online as well. You can, you can do... Um, um, automatic bank drafts uh, through, through your, your bank and other ways like that. So uh, please consider that. But again, there's some boxes on your way out. And, and since we're talking about COVID, um, you can see, um, hopefully they'll, they'll put the, the sign up there. Many of you have already seen it before, but there, there's a way that we're gonna dismiss you by sections so that we can keep proper social distancing and so on. And um, until we get to the point where the session can approve us to, to stage two of our uh, COVID plan, uh, we're still not going to be meeting in person for things like community group and, and Sunday schools and so on. So again, look to, uh, to Realm to find that, that type of information. Okay, so now's our, our time for a uh, call to worship, and in a moment we'll read from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verses uh, 6 through 15. And this is really the time where we... Um, take a break and really just focus on why we're here. A lot of us have come in with anxieties and cares and concerns uh, from our lives uh, outside these walls, things that we uh, are burdened with and things that may distract us. And really what we're, we're asking you to do at this, this time in the service is, is to just kind of breathe out a sigh and remember why we're here. The Lord has enabled us and encouraged us to meet, to, to, uh, to meet together, to, to encourage one another, to, to be admonished by God's word. And so that's what we're here to do. And so um, uh, we'll read this responsibly, and uh, I'll, I'll part, uh, do the part of the reader. So let's read this together, 2 Corinthians 9, 16, 6 through 15. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel to Christ and generous contribution for and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray. Gracious, loving, heavenly Father, Lord, you know all things and you work together all things for those who love you for your good and for your purposes. Uh, Father, you know why we're here. You know that we need you. You know, Father, that you uh, have opened our eyes and enabled us to understand and believe and trust in Christ. And so, God, we commit to you this day, this, this hour, this time together for your glory, for the benefit of your church. And in, in Jesus' name, amen. Stand and sing once again together. Oh. 
it has been a hard week. So we live in, a, in hard times, um, dealing with lots of issues in our society, but real things still go on. And we've had uh, babies born, and we've also lost our friend John Thompson. And so there's no easy way to deal with that. Um, it's always hard when we lose a member of our church family. The, uh, we will keep you informed as to what's going on, what arrangements are made, but none of those decisions will be made quickly. So please be patient. I would also ask that you not overwhelm Alex. Um, we have set up a Caring Bridge site. Uh, you can go and get information or leave comments. I'm sure once it's set up with a funeral home, they will also have a site where you can do that. And then as we go through this, we'll keep you informed as what we're able to do in terms of supporting and loving Alex and the Thompson family and meals and all that sort of thing. Um, but as you can imagine, she is pretty overwhelmed right now. So the best thing we can do is just pray every day. Pray regularly for Alex and Carmi and Caleb and Velvet. And uh, that would be much appreciated. Alex said numerous times, and to several of you, that she knows they're being prayed for, that God is being good in this time. And she's hearing uh, lots of testimonies of the kind of effect John had on people's lives. As you know, his heart attack came on the golf course. And when she went to get his stuff and pick up his car from the golf course, the employees all came out and talked about, you know, how great it was to have John part of their community how they loved him, how he was, always had a smile, how he always spoke and treated everybody so well. And I thought, what an amazing testimony that the employees at the golf course were coming out and saying how much they appreciated this man. I think there's going to be lots of those stories to come in the days ahead. But for now, if you would just remember to pray uh, for Alex and for the family uh, that would be much appreciated, and as we get through this, we will do our best to keep you informed as to what is going on. <sighs> yeah, um, just need to try to keep it together here for a moment. Um, let's, let's go ahead and uh, pray for um, the family, and then I'm going to turn it over to James for our regular prayer time. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, it is always hard when we lose a member of our family, but we know he is now having a better day than us. He is having his best day. He is with you and in your presence. And Lord, we will miss him here, but we trust in the promises of the gospel that we will be with him again. And we look forward to that day. Be with his family as they grieve, as they're stunned and overwhelmed. Give them peace and comfort and wisdom for the days ahead. And Lord, help us to be the church for them, to encourage them and comfort them and support them and love them, 
particularly in the days ahead as we get through sort of all the initial decisions, there is a long time coming where we need to be there for them. So enable us to do that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you've uh, probably noticed, the last month or so, we've uh, been doing our corporate um, worship through prayer time somewhat differently, and uh, we'll, we'll continue to do that. This week, we'll be reading some passages from uh, the Song of Jesus, a book by uh, Dr. Tim Keller, um, and we'll read together the sections that are in bold up here, um, and then we'll read responsively, if you, if you will, the other sections that I, I'll read, and then you'll respond with, uh, Lord, hear our prayer. But congregational prayer has, has always been a, a part of, of this service and the order of worship here, and it's, an, again, an important part of what we do. And as, as you've noticed in the songs that we've si we sing, the responsive call to worship, the, the, the corporate prayer times, all of these words, and, the, and particularly the confession in my heart, it, it, all those words are important. The lyrics that we sing are really important. So I, I pray that you um, read these uh, prayerfully and that you pay attention to what you're reading and, and pray along with me as I, as in the sections that I'm reading. So let's, um, let's read this first section, this bold section together from Psalm 2, verses 1 through 6. Together now. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Sovereign Lord, we pray on behalf of our church throughout the world for this congregation and for our sister PCA churches in Northern Virginia. Inhabit and bless the worship services in person and online of Gainesville PCA in Gainesville and Heritage PCA in Warrington. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, your answer, your answer to the chaos and strife of the world is your son, Jesus Christ. He will eventually break brokenness, kill death, destroy destruction, and swallow every sorrow. Teach us how to take refuge in you, in your forgiveness through Jesus, your wise will, and in your, and in your assured glorious future. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord and Savior, we are facing so many troubles, some of them of our own making, but we hold our heads up because we are your children and your servants to be our shield, protect us. So be our shield, protect us, and be our glory. Give us confidence that you are with us and you, you will bring us through this. Lord, hear our prayer. All-knowing Lord, you see what is in our heart. All-powerful Lord, we do not have the power to accomplish what needs to be done. So we spread out our requests before you. All-wise Lord, we know you hear and will, not, and will act but we know that we also must wait on your wise timing. And so we will. Lord, hear our prayer. And together now, O oh God, 
with our spoken and unspoken requests, we present to you in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. We're going to enter a time of uh, personal confession and then corporate confession. Uh, I'm sure all of us are aware that um, as sinners, we are in, in need of God's grace. We are in need of His redemption, His atonement, His sacrifice for us. And again, I, and I've said this before when it's been my time up here, these are some of the most important things we do on Sunday, this confession time. And so I'll give you a few moments. Confess your sins. Uh, repent of those sins. Uh, endeavor to, to, by God's help, to have strength in areas that you've failed in the past and, and be obedient in areas that you've struggled. So let's, let's take a few moments and then we'll read the uh, corporate confession together. Jesus name. Amen. So let's read this corporate confession together. O oh Lord, no day in our lives has passed that we have not proved us guilty in your sight. Our best services are filthy rags. All things in us call for our rejection. However, all things in Christ plead our acceptance. Grant us to hear your voice assuring us that by your stripes we are healed, that you are bruised for our iniquities, that you have made sin for us, that we might be made in you. Grant that by resting in your righteousness, we might hereafter walk in newness of life and run hard after your commandments. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And I'll read uh, the assurance of pardon. And if you're a believer today, these words are for you. Uh, this, the, the, those stripes that we just read about um, were for you, were for your salvation and for your payment. Um, and so uh, as I read that, uh, these next verse, uh, this next verse, it is for you if you're a believer. If you're not a believer today, I pray that you would repent, that, that you would see what is offered you in, in the cross. And so this is from 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin, him being Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is normally our time of uh, taking our tithes and offerings. And as I, I said again, thank you for, for your generous giving. And the boxes will be on the way out if you uh, prefer to leave a paper check. Thank you. Sorrow, a lot of um, suffering 
that we're supposed to call upon the Lord and praise Him because He is good. So I thought we'd sing this as our doxology. We sang this uh, the first Sunday we were able to come back to corporate worship. So let's lift up whatever we're feeling right now and give that as praise offering to God. And let's sing hallelujah to our Lord. Let's all rise. Children's Church, but rather than come down here to the front uh, asking the children for Children's Church, just meet in the lobby and go as a group to Children's Church. That would be great. Thanks. Let me get all hooked up here. Okay, out that way, guys. All right. Let's turn to our scripture today. As you're turning, I'd be remiss not to welcome home Kyle and Cassie Michael. Thought I didn't recognize you guys in the masks there, but I'd spot that bald head anywhere. <laughs> Glad you're here. So we are at the end of Matthew chapter 12. So if you would turn there, we're going to read verses 35 through 44. We've gone through uh, several weeks, a number of these passages, uh, various challenges and objections and questions for Jesus, and now we come here to the end of the chapter. So Mark uh, 12, I think I said Matthew earlier, I meant Mark, Mark 12, verses 35 through 44. Please listen carefully, as always, this is the Word of God. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. 
And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had all she had to live on. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. We need it. We thank you for it. We are glad and relieved to have it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us this morning to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. We ask that you would give us the grace to understand. It is hard to admit that we are often filled with doubts. It's even harder to admit that usually we want to control our own lives. So help us to consider what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to do what he says. Help us to hear your word, understand it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak through the gospel of Mark this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Dr. Robert George is a conservative professor at Princeton University. He is a prolific writer and a cultural commentator, and he's made a ton of friends and possibly even more enemies. But recently he wrote something that I found fascinating. This is in the context of the movement to eradicate any physical reminders of the Confederacy. And this is what he said. I sometimes ask students what their position on slavery would have been had they been white and living in the South before abolition. Guess what? They all would have been abolitionists. They all would have bravely spoken out against slavery and worked tirelessly against it. Of course, this is nonsense. Only the tiniest fraction of them or of any of us would have spoken up against slavery or lifted a finger to free the slaves. Most of them and us would have gone along. Most would have supported the slave system and happily benefited from it. So I respond by saying that I will credit their claims if they can show evidence of the following. That in leading their lives today, they have stood up for the rights of unpopular victims of injustice whose very humanity is denied and where they have done so knowing, one, that it would make them unpopular with their peers. Two, that they would be loathed and ridiculed by powerful, influential individuals and institutions in our society. Three, that they would be abandoned by many of their friends. Four, that they would be called nasty names. And five, they would risk being denied valuable professional opportunities as a result of their moral witness. In short, my challenge is to show where they have, at risk to themselves and their futures, 
stood up for a cause that is unpopular in the elite sectors of our culture today. Now, as you can imagine, his challenge goes largely unanswered. It takes a particular type of contemporary arrogance to think that now we do things right. But if we had lived back then, we never would have done those dreadful things. It's what Dr. T. David Gordon of Grove City College refers to as the tyranny of the modern. And of course, no one is asking what people 150 years from now will be condemning us for. It'll probably be some horrible, heinous sin that we can't even begin to fathom now. Perhaps it'll be something like the inexcusable way we portray other people on social media. Who knows? The reality is, all of this is nothing new. Every generation has had some sort of generational hindsight. Every generation has alternated condemning the past with revering their ancestors. Furthermore, every generation has had some sort of left-right split. Every generation has had political, cultural, racial, and economic divides. And Jesus' day and time was no different. There were left-right splits among the ruling class. They had political, cultural, racial, and economic divides. And they had generational hindsight, alternating condemning the past with revering their ancestors. So how does Jesus handle this? Very simply, he plays no favorites, and he takes on all comers. And he does that here in our text this morning, Mark 12, verses 35 through 44. We start by seeing him taking on the antagonists. That's your first blank, that's a big word, antagonists. The very, very beginning, uh, we see that because it says, verse 35, and as Jesus taught in the temple. This is Mark's way of tying this section in to everything else we've read in chapter 12. Because all along, Jesus has been in the temple having these controversies. And so Mark is inviting us to survey the whole chapter. You look at the chapter as a whole, even though there's lots of different interesting issues like paying taxes to Caesar and the afterlife and the greatest commandment and so on, what is Jesus telling us as a whole in this chapter? Now, many years ago, John Stott wrote a book called Christ the Controversialist. It has a survey of this chapter. It has now been reprinted as Christ in Conflict. And in it, Stott says, in these controversies, Jesus is actually opposing both poles of human thought, and therefore the whole spectrum of human thought. He doesn't take a middle position in these conflicts. He takes a wholly other position. So on the one hand, he opposes the Sadducees, which as both Franks told you in the last two weeks, we would call them the secular liberals today. They don't believe in the supernatural. <clears throat> Essentially, they believe in a generic philosophy of be nice and do good, especially if you do good to me. On the other hand, he also opposes the Pharisees, who would be what we call the religious conservatives today. Because even though the Sadducees didn't believe in the supernatural, the Pharisees don't believe in grace. They believe in a life of rule-keeping narrowness. 
And in biblical terms, we'd say the Sadducees promoted license and the Pharisees promoted legalism. And Jesus says they're both wrong. So as I've already alluded to, as we think about the culture wars today as something new, you have to realize these two poles of thought show up in most centuries, in most societies, in most cultures. We have moral absolutes versus personal choice, tradition or family or community <coughs> excuse me, versus individual rights and freedoms. We've always had law versus love. We've always had these poles. We've always had the spectrum of these views, this view versus that view. And Jesus comes out against both. Jesus doesn't fit into any category. Christianity is not this individualistic sort of create-your-own-reality philosophy, nor is it a moralistic save-yourself-through-good-works philosophy. It's neither. So what is it? At its core, Christianity is the cross. And at the cross, we see the absolute moral justice of God fulfilled completely by the absolute loving sacrifice of Christ on our behalf so we can be completely accepted in spite of all of our flaws, in spite of our weaknesses. The gospel worldview is unique. It doesn't fit on that spectrum because it does embrace moral absolutes, but because of radical grace and substitutionary atonement, it believes in embracing the weak and embracing the flawed and having compassion on everyone, especially, and this is hard, your opponents. It just doesn't fit neatly into our categories. And Jesus is saying, I'm not a traditionalist or a progressive. I'm not a moralist. I'm not a relativist. I'm not liberal. I'm not conservative. I'm something else entirely. And therefore, everyone who follows him will eventually be something else as well. So what do we learn here? Well, we learn, first of all, you can never put Christianity completely into one political bucket. It's too nuanced, it's too multidimensional, it's too rich. It just doesn't fit. So on the one hand, Christianity has some aspects to it that by the world standards are profoundly liberal. That's the reason why at the root of the civil rights movement, that overthrew racist segregation in this country was the African-American church. Protestant biblical Christianity, the biblical exodus, the emphasis on liberation from oppression. There are lots of liberal elements in Christianity. On the other hand, there are elements in Christianity that by the world standards are profoundly conservative. That's the reason why you have at the root of solidarity, the movement that destroyed the communist, atheistic, socialist regimes in Poland and Eastern Europe 30-some years ago, was a profoundly devout traditional Catholicism. Lots of conservative elements in Christianity. And see, Christians, out of their belief in the gospel, are on one hand pouring their life out for the poor and advocating for racial reconciliation and at the same time, working for religious liberty and traditional family values. You can never get all the resources and all the truth of the gospel into one political bucket. 
It just keeps breaking out because it's too multidimensional, it's too different, it's off the scale, off the charts, whatever metaphor you want to use, it's just not on that left-right spectrum at all. And you see the secular liberals and the religious conservatives, though they fight with each other, and even though they look like they're on opposing sides, from Jesus' point of view, they're just the same. They're exactly alike, and they're alike because they're both wrong. And that sets the stage here in Mark 12 for Jesus taking on these two groups. So first let's look at Jesus taking on the skeptics. Again, back in verse 35, we'll begin there. Jesus taking on the skeptics. He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. He confronts the, the skeptics with a theological dilemma. We see Jesus taking on the skeptics. All through the chapter, he's been on the defensive. He's been fielding questions, answering objections, but now he goes on the offensive. He's surrounded by people who don't believe in him. He's surrounded by people who struggle to believe. And so now he puts forth his argument to convince people that what he's saying is true. And when Jesus gives us an argument that's to lead us to believe in him, to lead us to faith, we need to understand what is that argument. So let's look at it. It starts in the second half of verse 35. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And then he quotes Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the great messianic psalm of the Old Testament. It is the Old Testament scripture that is quoted the most in the New Testament. We have a lot of people today, and as we think about losing someone like John, Psalm 23 comes to mind. It's probably the most well-known psalm, at least in our country. But back then, Psalm 110 would have been the well most well-known scripture of all. Everybody would have known that in the same way that we might know John 3.16 or Psalm 23. And so he quotes Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? So what's Jesus saying? Well, first of all, he starts with this premise that everybody believed at the time, that everybody understood, and that's the Hebrew prophets predicted a Messiah. And the Messiah was going to come and put everything right in Israel. And everybody believed that. They all believed the prophets. The Messiah is going to come, going to make things right. And all the prophets said the Messiah is a descendant of David. So the Messiah is in the line of David, descendant of David, and therefore would be a son of David, as it were. And that's why, you remember, they had to go to Bethlehem because, uh, 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 at the Incarnation because they were of the house of David. This is actually important. So Jesus says, if that's the case, how do you explain Psalm 110? That's a psalm of David, and David talks about this great figure who God sends, and he's going to put all enemies down, all enemies of God, all enemies of justice. It's clearly the Messiah. But in the psalm, David says, the Lord said to my Lord, referring to this messianic figure. In other words, 
David, King David, calls this messianic figure my Lord. Why? Now, if David is foreseeing one of his descendants, he would never call him my Lord. He would call him my son. So Jesus' question is, how can he be David's Lord and also David's son? Now, this argument is really tailored for that particular culture, not for our culture. And yet we can learn from it. Jesus is saying, how can David's Lord also be David's son? If he calls him Lord, how can he be his son? There's only one answer. And the only answer is the Messiah can only be David's son if he's also God's son. Jesus is talking to everybody in front of him, and he says, you have this view of the Messiah, he's just human. You believe the Messiah is going to be this human figure who's going to come and liberate Israel. But if that's the case, how do you explain this? And yes, the language is mysterious, but until you realize this isn't just a human figure, but also a divine figure, then this will be David's son, but he's God's son come into David's line. He's a divine figure and a human figure who comes not simply to put down political enemies, but ultimate enemies of all people to put down sin, to destroy death, to destroy evil. We just prayed along that line in our prayer to destroy death and kill sin. In other words, Jesus says, you have this paradigm of what the Messiah is supposed to be like. But if you read the scriptures, the Bible blows that up. Only I can fulfill the Messiah that the Bible shows us. Only I can fulfill that. That's what Jesus says. And again, he's tailored it for his time, but we can learn from it. Absolutely. Jesus is telling them and us that I'm the ultimate argument. Look in the scripture and take from it what you think I should be like, what you've told that I should be like, what you wish that I should be like, and then see me for who I really am. And if you read in the scriptures about who I really am, if you see me walking and talking and healing and ministering, in the end, you'll say the only way to explain this guy is if he's not just David's son, but God's son. Now, the problem they had with this, and the problem that so many people today, maybe some here, have with this, is instead of God providing us with an airtight argument, God provides us with an airtight person. It's a person against whom, in the end, there can be no argument. You know, over the years, I can't tell you how many people that I've talked to who know the arguments for the existence of God. They know the evidence for the resurrection. They've heard testimonies of changed lives. And yet the thing that convinced them in the end was they actually read the gospel text. They actually read Mark or Matthew or Luke or John. And in a way, they saw Jesus walking and talking and living and they tried to figure it out. Here's someone who no one would have made up how do we explain this person? There's one guy, he used to be a skeptic, and he put it something like this. He says, I was shocked into belief by who Jesus was. Jesus of the Bible is full of surprises, but they're surprises of perfection. He's tender without being weak, 
strong without being coarse, lowly without being servile. He has conviction without intolerance, enthusiasm without fanaticism, holiness without pharisaism. Is that even a word? Okay, Frank assures me that's a word, so we're good. Passion without prejudice. This man alone never made a false step. No one has ever been able to propose some word that Jesus ought to have said. Jesus says, I dare you to read about me, contemplate me, try to explain me, other than to say, this is not just David's son, but God's son. You know, even though we're rational, we're not just minds. And even though we're emotional, we're not just hearts. And even though we're volitional, we're not just wills. We're whole beings. So we need reasons, and we need testimonies. We need all kinds of things. And ultimately, Jesus is telling us, I'm an airtight person against whom, in the end, there can be no argument. I dare you to get to know me and to get to know me in the word of God. In other words, if there's anyone here who's waiting for an airtight argument before you begin a sustained look at Christ in the scriptures, you're going to wait a long time because he's there. The argument is there. It fits all cultures and all temperaments, not just the rational, not just the emotional. You have to pick it up or you'll never get the certainty you seek. You'll never overcome your doubts. There's one more thing that Jesus tells us here. Jesus is saying, if you have doubts, and who doesn't? Or if you struggle to believe, and who doesn't? I mean, some of you may not believe at all. Some of you do believe, but you don't believe anywhere near as much as you ought to. That's probably most people. We all struggle with belief. But if you struggle with belief and you want to do something about it, there's one more thing you have to do. And it's in this last little part about the widow. And this is where Jesus is taking on being in control. Jesus is taking on being in control. Starting at verse 38. You want to look there. It says, And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. In those days, it would be equivalent of having our offering boxes down here. And we'd all file down and everybody could get to see how much you put in the offering box. And we can look and say, oh, he's putting in a lot. She's not putting in very much. You know, what's with that? Everybody could see it. And he says, many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, over the years, I've read this a lot of times and never really understood why the story of the widow, though it's a very heartwarming story, it's a 
wonderful message about giving, what is it doing at the end of all these other accounts of Jesus talking to people who didn't believe, talking to people who didn't accept him, talking to people who struggle with doubt, talking to the skeptics? Why does he suddenly bring in this widow when he's talking to skeptics? I just thought of sort of a kind of a tacked on, unrelated thing to the rest of the chapter. Now I actually think it's the climax and completion of what Jesus is trying to say and teach here. That you will never ever get the certainty and faith you need in Christ unless you see what he's teaching us through this widow. So what's he teaching us? I mean, the first thing he does is sort of rant against people who don't care for the poor. And widows are the poorest of the poor. There's no Social Security, no Medicare, none of that in those days. And Jesus is talking about religious leaders, but notice, starting at verse 35, he says, Beware the scribes, and jumping down to verse 40, who devour widows' houses. They will receive the greater condemnation. Those are some pretty strong words. And what Jesus is saying here when he talks about people who devour widows' houses is he's drawing on the Old Testament, particularly the Hebrew prophet's theme that God identifies with the poor. All through the Old Testament, we have these strong statements where God is telling us that he identifies with the poor. And essentially, there's tons of verses, but he says, when you give to the poor, you give to me. When you insult the poor, you insult me. Over and over again. My heart is so bound up with the needs of the poor, the widow, and the orphan, that if you move against them, I see that as a move against me. If you ignore them, you ignore me. That's why I think we read in James chapter 1, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Of course, Jesus is not saying that helping the poor saves your soul. But rather, he's saying if you have no room in your heart for the poor, it shows you have no room in your heart for God. So Jesus is talking about this theme, and he turns to this incident where he sees people coming in and giving their offerings. They're walking up to the offering box, full view of everybody. And you could make a display about it. You think if you're a really rich person, you know, you're not going to come up and just slide that check in where nobody can see it, you know. And you're not going to just give $1,000. You're going to give 10 $100 bills so everybody can see you putting in. And you sure they're behind you counting seven you know, you can make a show of this. And that's what was happening. And it says, verse 41, he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. What must it have been like to receive the extended gaze of the Savior? I mean, the rich felt this gaze, but so did the poor widow. Jesus watched everyone there, their habits, customs, their way with one another, the, the way of handling money that was meant for worship. He's watching this sort of living video of the world, and he teaches his disciples to interpret what they see. Jesus is watching, and the rich come in, and they put in their money. And finally, this widow comes in and says she puts in two small copper coins, smallest coins and circulation, if you're familiar with the King James, we would call it the widow's might. It's less than a penny, as we would understand it. 
And when he sees her do that, he says in verse 43, he called his disciples to him. He turns it into a teaching moment. How many parents do that? You see something happen, and you immediately grab your kids and explain what happened. You turn it into a teaching moment. That's what Jesus is doing here. He says, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those contributing to the offering box. Verse 44, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. He's essentially telling them, though the amount of her gift is the smallest, her sacrifice is the greatest. She put in everything. She put in her whole life. She gave her life away. So what's he saying? You know what he's saying. When the rich give, let's be honest, when we give, we always give out of our margin. In other words, usually, we only, first of all, we only give money. And when the giving's done, are we eating any less? No, we don't give that much. Are we dressing any less? We don't give that much. Are we traveling any less? We don't give so much as to actually cut into our lives. For the most part, we give money. But look at this widow. Jesus said when this woman put in her last discretionary cash, what she is doing is literally taking food out of her own mouth. She's giving up what little control she had of her life. See, when the rest of us give, we tend to give what we can afford to give without giving up any control over anything. We do everything we wanted to do before. But when she gave, she didn't just give her money. She gives her life because she's given up control. And don't for a minute think that money doesn't give you control. So why is Jesus telling us this? Why is he bringing it up now? It's this nice little thing about stewardship, but why is it coming after all this talk about being skeptics? The religious person is trying to control God through morality. God, you can't let anything happen to me. I'm a good person. The secular person is trying to control his or her life by saying, I don't have anything to do with God. And basically, they're both scared. And they don't have what this widow has, which actually is spiritual bravery and therefore love. She's trusting God. She's trusting God so much that she had to trust God. She gave up control of her life. She gave her life away. And the reason we don't believe like we should, the reason we don't connect with God like we should, is because we're scared. We're afraid of losing control. It's not just a matter of, I'm afraid because I have trouble believing. No, we don't want to lose control. That's true for most of us. There may be an exception there. I'm not sure I've met that person yet. And if that's the case, what do we do? What's the solution? Well, let's do what Jesus uh, said about looking at who he really is in the scripture. When you get back to the Bible and you see God identifying with the poor, only if you come to Jesus will you ever really know how radically God identifies with the poor. When you read in the Old Testament and God says, if you insult the poor, you insult me, you say, oh, God emotionally identifies with the poor. In the New Testament, you see God literally identifies with the poor because when Christ came to the earth, he became poor. He's born in a manger. He's born to poor parents. He tells us in Matthew 8, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's homeless. And on the cross, he stripped absolutely naked. He became absolutely penniless. Only Christianity, 
of all the religions in the world <coughs> dares to say that God actually became poor. Here he challenges the people who devoured widows' houses, but on the cross he was devoured. He became weak. He gave up control for us. He who deserved justice got condemnation so that you who deserve condemnation can get God's justice. He paid your penalty so you could be saved by faith. Now we see that the widow is pointing us to Jesus. The widow, as wonderful as she was, as brave as she was, is only figuratively giving her life away. But when David's Lord became David's son, he literally gave his life away. He was devoured and he gave up control for you. Why wouldn't you want to trust him? See, Jesus is not saying, trust this remote God with your life, give up control to him. <coughs> He's saying, I want you to give up control and trust the God who came to earth and gave up control for you. No other religion says anything like that. If you see him do that, if you see Jesus giving his life away, if you see Jesus giving up control for you, if you really see it, it just melts you. And then it gives you the power to trust him fully and thoroughly and completely. Let me give you an example. I like this story. It's about a famous French tightrope walker named Blondin, who on June 30th, 1859... None of you remember that. Stretched a rope across Niagara Falls and walked across it. It's a big crowd. 10,000 people showed up. 1859, big crowd. They're all very excited. And so Blondin and his manager, a guy named Harry Colcord, so this is great. Let's promise a stunt and we'll do it next week. And so they said, next week, come back and I'll go out on the rope and I'll do a stunt. And so next week, the crowd was even bigger. And he went out uh, across and he did a stunt. So he said, next week I'll do a bigger stunt. And the next week there was a bigger crowd. And so one week he went across with a sack on his head. One week he bicycled across. Think about this, this is a rope over Niagara Falls. One week in a wheelbarrow he put a stove with a fire in it and he took it out in the middle and he made himself an omelet. And he ate it and then came back. He stood on his head, he did somersaults. All this is true. I'm not making any of this up. You can look it up. But he's running out of stunts. And it's getting near the end of the summer. And he says, I have to do something to get the biggest crowd of all. And they came up with this idea of I'll carry a man across on my back. Of course, that means there'll be two lives at stake. It'll be exciting, be big sensation. And so they announced it. Blondin's going to carry a man across Niagara Falls on his back. And everybody got excited. It was the biggest crowd yet, 100,000 people in 1859. So this means people are coming from hours and hours away, and they didn't take the highway. I mean, it, it, word went out. People gathered from all over. But they have to find somebody willing to do it. So they advertised $1,000 to any man willing to come and be recruited to go across, to be carried by Blondin. Now, $1,000 is a lot of money in 1859. I actually looked it up. It's the equivalent to $31,000 today. And of course, they have to find people, you know, that weren't too big or too this or that. 
and they finally got a sort of a, sl a slew of people here, a kind of a selection pool of folks they thought it would work. And so they took him to the brink, the edge of the cliff, and Blondin went out on the rope to show him he could do it. He went out and he carried a 200-pound sack and he did somersaults and made himself stakes and I don't know everything he did. He's an incredible acrobat, did amazing things. And he proved there's no problem with him doing this stunt. So he comes back and he goes down the line and he asks every single person, do you believe without a doubt I can carry you across? And one after another, everyone said absolutely no doubts. And then he said, well, you let me carry you across Niagara Falls on that rope. And one after another, they said, not on your life. Every one of them said no. Nobody would do it. So our problem is not the intellectual, is it? Our problem is, are you willing to give your life? What happened, by the way, is, you know, they'd advertised it. They had to do it. So Blondin turned to Harry, the manager, and said, Harry, it's going to have to be you. Everybody's showing up. We've got to do it. And Harry's terrified, but he did it. And halfway across that day, carrying Harry, his manager, Harry gets scared. And Blondin started to sway. And whenever he would sway, Harry would try to sway back and counterbalance. And we know from the newspapers of that day that it looked like they were ready to fall. And Blondin yells over surging waters 160 feet below to his partner. And he says, Harry, until I clear this place, you must become part of me mind, body, and soul. If I sway, you must rest in me completely and sway completely with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do that, we'll both go down to our death. If you try to save yourself, you will lose yourself. If you try to save yourself at all, you will lose yourself. Does that sound familiar? I mean, Jesus said that in Mark 8. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Blondin says, you have to rest in me completely. Trust in me completely. Jesus says the same thing. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's to say, Father, because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, I rest on Christ alone. Accept me because of what he has done. In me, I'm flawed. In him, I'm perfect. I trust in him thoroughly and completely for my standing before you. Now, all of you who are members have already said that. It's our second membership question. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? Do you receive and rest upon him alone? That's what it means to be a Christian. Blondin, of course, could have dropped Harry and fallen, but Christ can't drop you. You know why? If you want to push the metaphor out, Jesus has already plunged into the depths, so you'll never have to. So you can let him carry you. You can receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. Think about that. Just like the widow, you can trust him thoroughly and completely. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together.
Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. In this passage, we see your son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior and help us to repent and believe the gospel. Father, this little widow points us to Jesus. And therefore, Jesus, who gave all, who trusted completely, who gave up control for us, when we see him doing that, it brings us to the place where we can get out of our skepticism, out of our need for control, and trust thoroughly and completely in you. Father, in many ways, it's an awfully simple lesson today. But through your word, drive it into our hearts because our hearts resist it and we'll only be happy if we're resting completely, totally, and fully in you. Help us to do that now. And as always, help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever by faith. Let us see that. Amen. Receive the Lord's blessing from Romans chapter 1. Having been set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who is descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, 
including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. God bless you. We'll see you next week. We're dismissing. Oh, yes. Sorry. We have to dismiss by sections. Apart.